In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he has a purpose of writing to Timothy to explain to this apostolic representative that he has in the city of Ephesus how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. This is as timely of a letter today as it was in the day that it was written. It was, it was written to a specific audience for a specific purpose, but it has a much broader application, and that application is filled with many timeless principles of what the church should be like and how we as individuals should participate in the ministries of a church. We are all different. We, there is diversity in every church, but there also should be unity in a church. Uh, following the same model of the Trinity. In the Trinity are three distinct persons, but all have equal essence, equal divine perfections. So while in the Trinity there is diversity, God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. There is diversity within the Trinity, just like there is in a local church. We have 50, 60, 70 diverse people here tonight. Each of you has your own soul, your own thought pattern, your own responsibilities before the Lord. We are diverse, but we have, there is a unity within the body of Christ as well. And it's Christ that gives us that unity. These, these three letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, are called the pastoral epistles because it tells us a lot about how the, the shepherd of the sheep ought to conduct himself in the household of God. But don't miss it. There's, there's so much for those who are congregants, those who are the sheep themselves, and how we all ought to conduct ourselves. The church today is in a sad way. And I, and I mean that with all my heart. I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean that in just a way of observation. Scarcely a week goes by that even one of you doesn't send me an article and, and I, or I read something in the newspaper or on, on respected websites about the state of the church. Monday, uh, Paul and I had the opportunity of sitting down for lunch with uh, Robert Leitner. Uh, one of, uh, someone who is a mentor to both of us, but, but someone who is really uh, tuned in to the Christian community in ways that I'm not necessarily, because of the travels that he makes throughout the country, because he teaches ecclesiology at Dallas Theological Seminary. This is one of the areas of specialty for him, the doctrine of the church. He told me something that was stunning on Monday. And he said that within this whole new seeker mentality, this, uh, it's, that's, at least that's the name that it's been given, the, the mentality that the church should be designed for those who are non-believers rather than for those who are believers, which is exactly the opposite of what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures say the local church is, should be designed with believers in mind so that believers can come and worship the, that which they know, the one that they know. It's impossible for an unbeliever to worship someone they don't know. Now, true, the gospel should be given in the local church. That there, we should be sensitive to those who don't have the gospel that come into our midst. But the church should be designed, according to the Scriptures, for the believer. However, in many, in many instances, in many cases around the country now, it's, it's been flip-flopped. And in order to draw a big crowd, and this is, I mean, they're up front about that, so I'm not saying anything that, that they wouldn't tell you, they wouldn't amen. In order to draw a larger crowd, they will, they will have, have different methods which would, be, uh, uh, which would be appealing to those who might be seeking Christ but haven't found Him yet, hence the name. Well, one particular seeker church that Dr. Leitner informed Paul and I of has a very interesting new, new policy in their church. And that is that they've done away with the communion service altogether because it's too churchy. I just wonder, I wonder what Paul would say if, if he were here. I wonder what our Lord would say if he were here. You know, the Lord, the Lord does claim ownership of his church. In fact, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said... I will build my church, 
You didn't say anything about Bruce's church or Bob's church or Chuck's church. There's no, there's no human name in front of that other than our Lord Jesus Christ's name. And he has the right. He has the right to set the rules for his church. Do away with communion because it's too churchy? And then you call yourself a church? The, the, the whole Christian community has, has set itself on its ear. I would have said that it, is, that it has been set on its ear, but we've done this to ourselves because we get our focus off the one that we're supposed to be worshiping. And all throughout this letter, all throughout the, letter, the first letter to Timothy, there's been an undertone of, of, of a focus upon Jesus Christ. And now tonight, as we finish up the last main paragraph in this letter, uh, Paul, Paul leaves the illusions and comes right out with the, with the doxology that is one of the most touching and brilliant doxologies in all the Word of God in the way that he concludes the main portion of this letter as he says in verses 15 through 16, which he will bring about, speaking of Jesus and God, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, Amen. And I'd add amen and amen to that. You see, if our focus was on the person of Jesus Christ, all these other things would become such trivialities they'd fade off into insignificance. If our focus is where it should be. And so as Paul wraps up this first letter to Timothy, telling us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God, we should remember that it's God's household. It's not mine and it's not yours. <laughs> It's God, and He sets the rules. Now, granted, He delegates certain to, to certain individuals leadership responsibility, but those who are in a position of leadership need to search the Scriptures intensely to find out how God would want His church run. If you were to, if you, some of you it's been a while, some of you it's been recently, but, but if you were to call a babysitter, and to, to sit your kids this Saturday night while you wanted to go out for dinner and a movie. And you wrote a list out of, the, of exactly what you would like that babysitter to do. You know, at, at 7 o'clock, I, I need you to make sure that they're finished eating. 8 o'clock, would you make sure they've had their baths? 9 o'clock, would you make sure you've put them to bed? If you were to come home at 11 o'clock, let's say, and you had three children, and let's say the TV was blaring, the babysitter was on the phone, the kids had chocolate all over their face. They're still in their regular street clothes. They haven't gotten their pajamas on yet. And they were jumping up and down on the couch. Would you be very happy with that babysitter? Probably not. Because that babysitter did not fulfill your wishes with regard to an institution that is yours. That's your family. That wasn't theirs. So we need to take these pastoral epistles seriously. And remember, it's Christ's church doesn't belong to us and as soon as we turn our focus upon ourselves as soon as we as soon as we have as one of our goals to entertain ourselves i want no part of it i don't I mean, i'll quit in a heartbeat if, if i ever sense us turning our attention onto ourselves we are we are not a strong enough integration point to get ourselves through this life that I would be an abject failure if I wake up one day and we, we, can, we come to this church to be entertained solely. That church should be fun. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, the, the, the coming to church should be the funnest thing we do every week because of what we're doing. 
because we're focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, one who sought us, one who saved us, one who keeps us by his grace on a regular, on a day-to-day, a moment-by-moment basis. What could be more entertaining than that? You see, but but it's not, no one should come to church and say, here I am, you entertain me or I'm going somewhere else. Go. Now, I know I'm speaking to the choir tonight, but this is on tape. Go, if that's what you're about, because it's not going to happen. It will be like that shepherd that's watching the gate to the sheep, that's that's laying over the sheepfold. It's going to be over my dead body anyway. We are not going to become a church that has turned our attention upon ourselves. It would be the weakest institution in the world. Our, Our focus should be on the one that Paul mentions at the end of this letter. Now, just for context, let me go back to verse 11, because there's so much in this last paragraph. You see, verses 11 through 16 are the final, is, is the fi- those are the final verses in the main section of the letter. When we get to verses 17 and following, there is, there is somewhat of a P.S. to the letter. But when Paul says, Amen, after verse 16, this is actually the end to the formal section of the letter. So in this last paragraph, he has saved some of the best for last. Now, now read along with me, and then we'll, we'll review. Uh, review's not really the right word. We'll, we'll revisit some of the things that we took a look at last time, and then we'll finish with a flurry with regard to who it is our attention should, should be placed upon. But flee from these things, you man of God. Now, this man of God is Timothy, but it's also you. Okay? It's also you and me. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, or we could say at, the, at his timing, not ours. And he, he who is blessed, the blessed, and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, with whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So as we come to the end of this magnificent letter, it's, it's really a bit unclear as to whether Paul intended to conclude this charge with, to Timothy with verses 15 and 16, or if, the, or if the letter actually concludes in verse 20. As I said a minute ago, I believe the body of the letter actually ends with the amen of verse 16. Now, if Timothy knew what was good for him, he would read, he would have read these verses over and over again. If he had a refrigerator... He should have written them out and put an ancient magnet on that ancient refrigerator. And every time he opened it up, he should look at these verses. Because these verses are a critical conclusion to a very critical letter. In these verses, the man of God, Timothy, is contrasted with false teachers and lovers of money. A man of God is God's special possession, His unique ambassador. He's God's representative here on earth. He's Christ's representative, just like you are. When when you jump in the car and run down to Randall's and interact with the checker at Randall's or someone who's walking in the door before you, you are Christ's ambassador. He is making his case through you. Every time you do 
Whatever it is you do, he's making his case through you. And so many, I know because I've talked to you, so many feel so bad sometimes that I'm, that I'm not giving the gospel to as many people as I would like to give the gospel to. Well, don't forget, every time you go out in public, your life is a testimony of Jesus Christ. Whether you ever mention the gospel verbally or not. Now, of course we need to mention the gospel verbally. I'm not trying to take that away from you. Heaven forbid, I would never do that. That's our responsibility. But don't think that's the only responsibility we have. We have a responsibility to think and to act, behave in a certain way. Oh, and to speak in a certain way, a way that would be Christ-like, so that it's in, in, instead of seeing us open the door for the person at, at, the, at the grocery store, they see Christ opening the door. Instead of us being kind to the checker, they see Christ being kind to the checker. We have a responsibility as an ambassador, and heaven forbid any of us forget our responsibility as an ambassador and think we're fulfilling the plan of God when we're jerks for Jesus at 10 o'clock, and then at 11 o'clock we decide to go out and give the gospel to people. It doesn't work that way. Being an ambassador for Christ is 24-7. Now, we all fail. Believe me, we all do. Yours truly included. We, we never are perfect ambassadors. But don't, go, don't get so wrapped up in the fact that I've got to give the gospel to ten people each day, and then in between the, those gospel presentations, you're a total jerk. And that's the nicest thing I could say. You know what I mean. We have a responsibility to live a certain way that, so that when we do open our mouths, people don't run the other way and go home and, and tell their wife, you know what that idiot that I run into at the grocery store tried to tell me today? You know the one that's always pushing his way in front of me? The one that's always going into the check to the express line with 40 things instead of 10 things? You know that idiot? He tried to tell me about Jesus. Don't give him an excuse to do that. You see, this is, a, this is our ambassadorship, and it is critical. Timothy, as a man after God, must flee from the things... Flee from those vices of the false teachers, the, the ones who are lovers of money, the ones who put money in a place of idolatry in their life. They must flee from those things and run after righteousness, the state of heart and mind which is in harmony with God's law. Now, I know, or I can imagine, that that doesn't seem like the funnest thing in the world. You know, If we're talking about flat screen TVs or yachts, or, or you, you fill in whatever it is that may be important to you. Maybe, maybe everybody perks up when we say, let's run after righteousness. It sounds so boring, doesn't it? At least on this. I mean, yeah, face it, it, it does. It sounds a little bit boring. Let's run after righteousness. Wouldn't we rather run after a million dollars? Or run after the things that a million dollars can buy? That almost, I mean, tell the truth. I mean, don't, don't nod to me. Don't tell the truth. Just look at me because I don't want to know. But, but, but there's a part of us deep down that said, that sounds more exciting. But I tell you what, there's nothing more exciting in your life than running after righteousness. Because while you think the other things will make you happy, the thing that will ultimately bring you the most contentment in life, and that's what we all are searching for, really. We're all looking for contentment in life. The thing that will, that will bring you the most contentment in life is a pursuit of righteousness. To live the way that God has outlined and designed for us. Now, you can see this with your own kids, but we can't see it with ourselves. We set up a set of boundaries for our kids, uh, uh, rules and regulations, if you will. And we set them up for our children's best interest. You'll come home by this time. I don't want you driving with these people. Wear your seatbelt, take your vitamins, eat your breakfast, whatever it may be. Do you set those things up to make life hard on your kids or because you love them? Now, 
at least allegedly, we're supposed to have more intelligence than our kids. At least, uh, maybe, maybe not in, in terms of IQ, but in terms of applied IQ, until a certain age, we're supposed to be able to be smarter than them. Well, God's a lot smarter than us. And just like we set up a set of boundaries for our kids because we love them, so has God done that as well. So when we say run after righteousness, that shouldn't be boring. It should be exciting. If you really, truly do believe what it is you say you believe. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe some of us are just pretending. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of you came here tonight because it's just the thing to do on Wednesday night. Maybe you didn't have anything else to do. I don't know what's on TV Wednesday night. It's been so long since I've been home on a Wednesday night. Maybe there just wasn't anything on TV tonight. I don't know. I, I, I hope that's not why you're here. I hope you're here to pursue righteousness. I hope you really believe what it is you say you believe. This righteousness, which is in harmony with God, will end up leading to godliness, which is a behavior consistent with the character of God. The verbs in verse 11 here are so dramatic. Flee and pursue. He's to be in flight from the false teachings and the love of money. He's to be in the pursuit of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Do you notice how that list very closely resembles another list in the Scriptures? In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Very closely associated, isn't it? A lot of overlap there. Flight and pursuit is a vivid way of viewing the Christian experience. On the march to maturity, there are things that must be constantly avoided in an active way, not just in a passive way. Hence, again, Francis Schaeffer's phrase, active passivity. To flee implies something's after you. This, today I, I saw, uh, going home before I came back up here, I saw a dog chasing after a little girl. Now, I was going to go do something about it, but there was another man that was, was standing there. Well, that girl was fleeing. Now, you don't flee something, you don't flee unless something's after you, do you? Not, not typically. That wouldn't be the right terminology. You see, there is an active component to evil. It's not just passive. Evil will pursue you. That's why you've got to run away from it. Now, I know that most all of us are taught not to run away from anything, not to be scared of nothing. Remember that? <laughs> you know, and, and especially if you're a male. You know, we're not, we're, we're not going to ever retreat. Well, this is not retreating. There, there is a bunch of bad evil that is pursuing you. We're not only to move away from it, we're to run away from it as quickly as we can get away from that evil. But that's only half of the equation. You, you wouldn't really be where God wants you to be if that's all that you do. You know, we ignore this idea. We stick our head in the sand to this idea, the idea that evil is pursuing you at our own peril. You, you say, well, evil's not after me. Well, maybe I haven't turned around and looked lately. Evil is after you. Now, I'm not talking about evil so much as a principle, but, but evil in terms of the flesh. The flesh throws up signals of evil and temptation to sin. Satan himself is a source of temptation to sin. The world, his cosmic system, is a source of temptation to sin. And it is actively pursuing you. So you have to actively flee. Now, there are times when we dig in and resist. Ephesians 6. Put on the armor of God three times. I think it's three times in there. It talks about resist the devil. But there are also times when we are to turn and we're to flee. And true wisdom is knowing when to do what? What? True wisdom is knowing when to do what? 
Now, pursuit is part of pursuit of righteousness is the other side of that coin of Christian discipleship, a Christian experience, the move to maturity, if you prefer. Righteousness has to do with what is right, both to God and, and to you. It's how, I, it's how I interact with God. It's how I, I live my life before God, but it's also living my life before you. I don't want you to leave here tonight without getting my point. <laughs> There's, the people that you are sitting with here tonight are a great part of your Christian experience. You can't have it independently of them. You, you don't get to live your Christian life on an island. I've heard that, of, haven't you? Well, what if, what if you're, you're stranded on a desert island all by yourself? You know, can you live the Christian life? Well, I'm sure you can, but that's not normative. It's more normative to be sitting in a room that's getting maybe a little bit more warm than I would like for it to be, and, and sitting shoulder to shoulder with people, some of whom might have irritated you this week. Is that going to stop you from glorifying God or loving them? Well, if you're pursuing righteousness, it won't. Now, in verse 12, he has a couple other words. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life. This word brought up, if you recall, images of competitive boxing in the ancient games, the Olympic games, the Pythian games, the Corinthian games. And sometimes Paul uses running as an illustration, but here he uses fighting. fighting this kind of fighting is a disciplined and determined struggle. Now, I hope at least half of you in here have never been through that. I would be disappointed in you if, if you had. But the other half, the, the male half anyway, perhaps you have. Whether it's in a, in a, in a ring where it's organized or whether it's not, when, when you're in a, in a struggle like that, and some of you I know have been in, in, in real combat situations, so you could even take that to a whole other level. But it's, it's life and death. It's the determined struggle. And that's the way Paul puts it here. This is not a light thing. The whole spiritual conflict is a determined struggle. And we need to go into it understanding that's what's going to happen. Just like a boxer who takes his opponent too lightly often gets knocked out in the first round. Many believers who take our opponent too lightly sometimes are finding ourselves getting up the, off the canvas a lot quicker than we thought we might. Because he KOs us right out right from the get-go. And, and Paul wants us to understand we are in the middle of a fight. And it's likely, even if we have our focus where it needs to be, that we're going to get knocked down a time or two. That happens in boxing matches. But if our focus remains on Christ, if our reliance is upon the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, then we'll get up when we're knocked off our feet. We'll continue when we're so tired that we can't lift our arms and we will finish the fight. We will not quit. I want you to remember, you're never fighting alone. I just got through saying that it's the, the, the dwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to fight this fight. Try to fight it alone, and you'll be in big trouble. But you're not, you're not in a position of solitude, or, or solitariness, rather. God is on your side. The Lord of the universe is on your side. The one who created you is on your side. You have nothing to fear. Now, while the fight of faith is a continuing process, the assurance of eternal life by God's grace and mercy is already a settled reality. I hope you know that. You have eternal life right now, Paul says, and it can't be taken away from you. But there's more than that that's going on in this passage. As he says in verse uh, 12 again, Fight the good fight of faith, 
take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Our possession of eternal life is not just something that is to be valued like an IRA, you know, a retirement account that can be redeemed when we reach a certain age. But right now, it does us really very little good. It's not like that. At, at least, it, it shouldn't be like that. It's a present reality. Just like a retirement fund, to use the same illustration, a retirement fund can give the holder of an account like that some present comfort as we look ahead to our retirement years. If you have a retirement account right now, then you can have a, some, a certain comfort, even though you might not touch that money for years, you have, you have comfort knowing that it's there. In the same way, we have eternal life as a present possession. Now, the, the full reality of that is not going to hit us in the face until we get to eternity, until we pass from this life to the next one. We close our eyes here, we open our eyes in heaven, and it's going to be the wow, the greatest wow we've ever had. But there can be a present appreciation of it now. It gives us confidence for living now. We discussed that in some detail last week, so I won't revisit it here. But the present realization that we possess right now, eternal life, is a very powerful event in the Christian's life. Now, Paul says in verse 13, I charge you, that as I pass along this authoritative message, and then he presents two reasons in verse 13, why Timothy should do just as he's been told, he should not fear for his life for the charges given and received under the very eyes of the one who gave him life in the first place. And he should remember what Christ did when he was testifying before an enemy of the truth, that's Pontius Pilate. Before Pontius Pilate, he stood firm, bearing witness before him by word and by deed, thus making a beautiful confession or a good confession, proving himself to be a faithful witness. So Timothy should keep, that is, he should stand guard or protect or preserve his commission that he had been given. The commandment that is spoken of here includes all of what Paul has said throughout the entirety of the letter, not just these things about fleeing from the love of money. It's the whole package. And a similar command comes to all of us who, who have been given a similar responsibility, the ambassadorship aspect. Every one of us must keep our commission untainted and unsoiled until the very day of our death or until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the rapture of the church, the resurrection of the church. The next prophetic event, uh, we call that the imminency of the rapture. There's nothing that has to happen before that event can happen. You know, it's interesting here. Paul uses that for Timothy. In Paul's mind... Either this imminency of the rapture idea, the rapture could have occurred before Timothy died. Did you see that? You're to keep this until the Lord comes. You keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Paul's mind, the rapture of the church could have come before Timothy's death. It was imminent. There was nothing that had to be fulfilled before this would come. This is a source of great discussion today. I think it's probably because of the success of the Left Behind series. That aggravated a lot of people uh, and, and really brought out the, uh, some mid-trib or post-trib uh, people. But it ought not to aggravate you. It should encourage you. Uh, Dr. Walbert used to call it uh, a great hope, the blessed hope, that our Lord was coming for us. Now, the section ends here, again, with a doxology and a benediction that's unlike any of other, Paul's other uh, benedictions. 
It's a magnificent ascription of praise to Jesus as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of lords. To Jesus is ascribed immortality, unapproachable light, and invisibility. And to affirm Him, we honor Him. As to its thought content... Every element in this doxology stresses the transcendence or incomparable greatness of God. Do you remember what transcendence means? Transcendence means transcendence means that God is outside of His creation. He's above His creation. If you got in a rocket ship and started going and kept going and going and going and going, you had some sort of special rocket ship that could do that, you'd never get to God in His transcendence because no matter how far you went, He would still be outside of that. That's called transcendence. Now, eminence, not eminence, like I mentioned a minute ago, but with an A. Eminence means that he's in here. He's with us now. But these verses are not talking so much about that, those characteristics of God, but rather the fact that he is so far beyond us that he is described in this way. And isn't it interesting that God is so far outside and above his creation would want to have something to do with little old you or little old me. In fact, so much to do with little old you or little old me that he sent his beloved eternal son who was also transcendent down into this creation to die for you and me. As sovereign, as the boss, God is altogether blessed. He's also the only sovereign. Here, so, so therefore, he's absolutely incomparable and his right to do whatever he pleases. For example, to choose the appropriate time for Christ's return. Listen, there's a lot, a lot going on in today's Christian culture about the whole idea of sovereignty and free will. Um, in, in our desire to recognize man's responsibility or man's free will, let us not forget God's sovereignty. It is true. It is absolutely true that God has the right... As the creator, he's got the right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation. And we as the creation, as the creation should never shake our fist back at God and say, you don't have that right. He does. Now, fortunately for us, God is the sum total of his infinite perfections. He is sovereign. He's the boss, but that's not the only infinite perfection that he enjoys. He's also love. He's also just. He's fair. He's holy. And he's the sum to and he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He's truth. He's, he's, immut he's immutability. He's all that package together. So God is not some sort of uh, transcendent Hitler. Let's, let's, don't, let's don't insult him that way by just only focusing on his sovereignty. But this verse does bring it out. I mean, God is sovereign, but he's also love. That's the point. And he's not going to do anything in his sovereignty that contradicts his love. He's not going to do anything in his love that contradicts his fairness or his holiness. I hope you get that point. Thus, the blessed God, referred to already in chapter 1, and the only God, also referred to in chapter 1, are here combined. He is alone the real king of kings. Now, ancient kings used to like to call themselves that. Sometimes the kings of the Persians used to say they were the king of kings. Well, guess what, Darius, Xerxes, you just thought you were the king of kings. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He's the only one that can wear that title well. 
because every one of the other ones was defeated at one time or another or is going to spend eternity in defeat. Jesus Christ is the true King of Kings. He is the majestic King of Kings. He alone possesses immortality. Now this doesn't need to be... Here, don't confuse this with endless existence. That's implied, to be sure that's a part of it. But when he says, when this text says that he is immortal, we, we sing a hymn by that name, don't we? Immortal, invisible, God only wise. You know where it comes from? It comes from First Timothy. But when, when we talk about immortal or immortality, uh, far more is brought in. It means, as one New Testament authority wrote, that God's life is a life of a never failing fountain you see the only human beings who as far as it is possible for creatures to do so share this immortality and there become we become partakers of divine natures we are believers the only human beings who they can talk about that are believers although I hope you remember that unbelievers also have a life that doesn't stop but we have a life that doesn't stop that's wonderful. It's abundant. They have a life that doesn't stop that is not so abundant. But, but God's immortality means even more than that. It's, it's through the gospel that immortality or imperishability was brought to light. For the believer, immortality is a redemptive concept. It has to do with our salvation. It is everlasting salvation. But for God, is it is eternal blessedness. But while the believer has received immortality, we were given eternal life. As one drinks a glass of water from a fountain. See, God has eternal life. It belongs to His very being. He is the fountain. We drink from that fountain, but He is the fountain. So that the idea of immortality means more than just he's going to live forever. He is the very source of that eternal life. I trust you see the difference. It's not just speaking about the fact that he, he has eternity, but that he's the source of eternal life. The idea of life, which is mentioned in this idea of implied in immortality anyway, naturally leads to the, one of the final discussions, and that is one of light. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, we studied in John chapter 1. Now this light, this light is kind of like the light of the sun. Remember when there's an eclipse, they tell you don't look straight at the sun, because there's, there's all these difficult rays that can come and blind you. Now we can, we can look at the sun this way. We can go outside and look at all the things that the sun is illuminating. But I hope your parents told you at one time or another, don't just sit there and look straight at the sun. Because your eyes can't take it. Now, in a very small way, in a very small way, that's what God is like as well. We, we can glance, but we don't have the ability as finite creatures to look fully into his infinite perfections. He dwells in light that is unapproachable. Now, now not in the sense that we can't have a relationship with him. But in terms of looking into the full deity of God, that would kill us. That's why Moses had to hide his face. Uh, that, that's why the, the prophets would get a glimpse of God's glory. 
Psalm 104, verse 2, he covers himself with light as a garment. Like a dwelling conceals its occupants and hides them even more when it is unapproachable. So God's very essence, by virtue of what it is, conceals him. Hence the term light is used here, reemphasizes his incomparable greatness. Now, think about that for a minute. He is concealed in one sense, but he's chosen to reveal himself to us in another sense. That's the God, the God that's way up there. The God that is transcendent, the God who could have just left us alone to our own devices if he wanted to. He has chosen, that God has chosen to have a relationship with you, to make that relationship possible. Wouldn't you think that would affect how we live? If we really ever grasp that, wouldn't you think that would affect how we go about raising money for a church? It's his church. It's It's the transcendent, majestic God's church. So what are we panicking for? Well, you tell me. If he can't do it, it can't be done. Now, he's, now, he does it through people, to be sure, oftentimes. In the early days of Dallas Seminary, in 1928, I believe, was the year, because it was the fourth year of Dallas Seminary's existence. Dallas Seminary had run out of money. And Lewis Berry Chafer didn't believe in begging, like, true, there were, there, was, there were some people that, that had told him, if you ever need anything, come to us. We'll talk to you. But they needed $50,000 in 1928, and that was a lot of money, 1928. It's a lot of money now, but, I mean, it was an overwhelming amount of money in 1928. And the board of trustees had gotten together, and they decided that if the money wasn't raised by the time of the graduation, because that was going to be the first graduating class, if the money wasn't raised by then, they would just announce at the graduation that they would have to shut the seminary down. I think at the time it was still called the Evangelical Theological Seminary, way back that time. Dr. Schaefer, G. Fred Lincoln, Roland Schaefer, all that incredible first faculty that they had, they prayed about it intensely day after day after day. And the money didn't come in. Finally, the day, the final day came, the day that they were going to have to announce that they were going to close the seminary, and Dr. Schaefer got to his office early that day. He had a big wing-back chair, Dr. Walbert said, and he sat in that chair. And he had intended to pray intensely one last time. When there was a knock on the door and the rest of the faculty showed up early. They weren't told to be there, but they all just happened to be moved by the Spirit to show. And they prayed and they talked and they prayed some more. And then shortly before they were to go out and announce that the seminary was to close... There was another knock on the door, and it was one of those messengers that they used to have way back when that handed, came up to Dr. Chafer in a chair and handed him an envelope with a letter in it and with a check in it. And Dr. Walver describes the scene in, in, in a very interesting way. He, he says that Dr. Chafer read the letter, and as the letter was read, the, the check you know, fell out onto the ground, and then finally Dr. Chafer fell back in his chair like this. And the scene is described as all these very dignified shepherds, these pastors, these theological giants, dove on the floor (laughs) to see what was there. It was a check for $50,000 written by a man from Indiana, I believe a dentist, who knew not of the need that the seminary had. I believe he had sold some cattle. Interesting, isn't it? God's sense of irony. 
And he wanted to give the money to the seminary, so he gave it. It was confirmed later. He knew nothing about the need, the specifics of the need. But God supplied the need for his own. So, because he is sovereign, he will bring about the resurrection of the church at the proper time. He's the blessed. He's the only boss. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He alone possesses immortality. Not necessarily, we're not talking about eternal life there, but in, in the sense of giving it, in the sense of receiving it, though. He's the fountainhead who gives it. He dwells in unapproachable light. Like looking at the sun, we can't look at his deity. We can see the sun, the S-O-N. And if you've seen him, you've seen God. But in terms of even looking on the deity of the sun, you couldn't do it. Now, perhaps we'll be able to in eternity. I haven't quite decided that yet. I don't know if our resurrection bodies will be able to behold that in its entirety. I suspect not, because we'll still be creatures. To him, be honor. Not to us. Not to me, not to you. Not to any other theologian, not to any other servant of the Lord, but to him. The Lord is my name. I'm not gonna, I am the Lord that is my name. I will not share my glory with another. It's His. And Paul understands that. Paul loves the Lord Jesus Christ deeply. So he says, To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Forever you're the boss. Forever you're the most powerful. We recognize that. Now again, this was written to an audience a long time ago to a man who's long been dead, long been with the Lord. By the name of Timothy. Timothy was ministering in a particular situation in Ephesus. And there were problems in Ephesus. There, of course, those same kind of problems exist in the church today. But don't, don't just leave it there. Realize, understand fully, if you would, that, that there is significance here for all of us. We all have a responsibility to conduct ourselves in the way that Paul has outlined here. Perhaps you're not an elder or a pastor or a bishop. All use the same term. Those terms are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Perhaps you're not a deacon. But you are one of God's flock. And so this letter is incredibly important to each and every one of us. We are ambassadors. We are representatives of Jesus Christ. It's about him. It's not about us. And he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can take care of whatever financial difficulties you have. He created your body. He can take care of whatever physical difficulties you had. He's the shepherd of your soul. He can calm you in the worst of life's storms. To him, to him, the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much. We're so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. We recognize your transcendence. We recognize, in a sense, your unapproachability, but you've come to us, and you've revealed yourself to us. Father, we thank you that we have a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we never take that for granted, and it's in his name that we'll ask it. Amen.